Hello, and welcome to the New Mexico Autism Project podcast for educators. These podcasts, as well as our online training series, have been developed by the University of New Mexico Center for Development and Disability in collaboration with the New Mexico Public Education Department as a resource for educators who would like to learn more about evidence-based practices for working with students diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. We hope that you enjoy this series, and if you have any questions about these resources or how we may support your school district through the NMPED Autism Project, please contact me, Patrick Blevins, at the email address shown on the slide or call the UNM CDD at 505-272-3000. Welcome to this series of podcasts on evidence-based practices sponsored by the New Mexico Public Education Department and presented by the Autism and Other Developmental Disabilities Division for Development and Disability. I'm Marianne Trott. I've been a teacher for many, many years. I'm a board-certified behavior analyst, and uh, most of my time these days is spent in supervising other behavior analysts. Before we get to the content of each podcast, it's important that you know what evidence-based practices are. I know you hear a lot about them, and I know that you as teachers know that you're supposed to employ evidence-based practices, and uh, in some cases, you're even getting evaluated by your, by your use of them. Uh, so let's have a real clear understanding of what they are. An evidence-based practice is, and this is a quote uh, from the uh, National Professional Development Center on Autism Spectrum Disorders, it's an instructional or an intervention procedure or set of procedures for which researchers have provided an acceptable level of research that shows that the practice produces positive outcomes for children, youth, and or adults with ASD. So the research is sort of the important part there. An evidence-based practice is a practice that's been researched. And then that research must then be integrated with clinical expertise or, you know, or classroom expertise in the context of patient or student characteristics, culture, and preferences to make decisions about the use of evidence-based practice. So something that is, um, per the research and evidence-based practice, may not necessarily fit with uh, the experience of the practitioner or may not fit with the culture uh, or characteristics of the individual. So all of those things have to be taken into consideration when we think about evidence-based practices. Today, we're going to talk about prompting. And prompting is an evidence-based practice that covers a lot of ground. And all of you as teachers, all of us as teachers, we do a lot of it without even thinking about it. And as you know, prompting is an essential tool, but it must be used very thoughtfully. And sometimes because it comes so naturally to us, we don't really think about it quite as carefully as maybe we ought to. So prompting uh, officially refers to providing assistance or cues to encourage the use of a specific skill. That's the definition. The end goal of prompting, as in all educational procedures, all evidence-based practices, is independence to the greatest extent possible. And that is really something very important to keep in mind. Uh, joining us today is Whitney Jaramillo. Whitney, will you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your experiences and how you've learned about how and when to prompt and what to watch out for? 
Of course. Well, it is so great to join you today. I am coming up on my 10th year working with children with autism in a variety of, I guess, different capacities. And I knew I had always wanted to work with children. I just didn't really know how. Um, so as I was getting my undergrad at UNM, I was working as a research assistant um, on a study looking at language processing for children with autism. And so at that point, I kind of knew that I wanted to center my focus um, around children with autism and children with special needs. So I graduated. I was working um, as a registered behavior technician, which opened my eyes to ABA, but also kind of education and special education specifically. So I was working on my master's in special education, and they also had um, the grad, cer grad certificate in ABA. Uh, but during that time, I actually taught special education preschool um, for four years. And that was an absolutely amazing experience. Once I graduated and passed my BCBA, I uh, am currently as a clinical supervisor at a local ABA clinic. So quick and the quick little version of my history there. <laughs> so uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and Whitney and I uh, met uh, when she was uh, working at the, the preschool and uh, really had a lot of great conversations. And among them were conversations about prompting. Uh, and so that's why I've asked Whitney, because she's uh, kind of a master at using all kinds of prompts. So mm -hmm. I expect that a lot of the teachers listening to this podcast have heard about a hierarchy of prompts. Could you uh, tell us what is that hierarchy? And do you you always follow it with every student? Yeah, so I kind of think of the hierarchy as a staircase that you use to support your students um, to kind of cue or give that re correct response. So whether you're going, you know, up the staircase or down the staircase, you use that to provide various levels of support. Um, so more specifically, uh, we kind of talk about each prompting level um, whether it be a physical prompt or a verbal prompt um, and various, um, I guess, levels of that. So whether you're going to give a full prompt um, with full physical support, um, we also call that hand over hand, or if we're going to kind of fade that away with a partial prompt, maybe a model or a gesture, um, maybe putting something in a different position, or if we're using a full prompt in terms of a verbal response or cue. Um, so we could give that full verbal response beginning to end of what we want our student to say, or we could give part of it, um, or we could even use some visuals um, to help them know what to say. Um, so those are kind of the two main ones. Um, and I don't always follow it with every student. I do use it as my starting base. Um, I know the order that I do want to start, whether it be a physical task I'm teaching or a verbal task that I'm wanting them to um, kind of give me that response for vocally, but I individualize it depending on what each student needs. So I might not always go a, B, C in that order. You know, I might skip over one if they're showing more independence sooner. So oh, Whitney, you use the word fading, and I and I um, think that's really an important thing that we uh, sort of introduce at the very beginning. What do you mean when you talk about fading a prompt, and how do you know uh, when uh, to fade a prompt? Um, so when I'm thinking about um, those prompt 
levels, I kind of think of them in two categories. So like I said, the verbal and the physical, and then they're kind of organized within that hierarchy from most support given to least support given or vice versa. Um, so if I have already determined what skill or what goal I need to work on with my student, then I will then start by using, for example, most to least, which would give them the most support. So that hand over hand support to get the desired response. And then as I'm seeing that they are able to do that with less support, then I fade. Um, I kind of push myself back out of the picture a little bit by providing that partial prompt um, and then continue to fade as I see more and more um, independence on their end. Um, I could do just a model of the action I want them to do. I could maybe gesture to what I want them to do, or even, like I said, kind of put something in a different position so that they're more likely to, you know, emit the correct response, but also do it more independently without my 100% support. So I don't stay in that hand over hand the entire time. Well, and what you said about independence is really key because, as I as I said, what we our goal is always independence. Um, and so, when you think about, uh, or do you fade very slowly, or very, or uh, tend to do it more quickly? Um, how do you avoid? Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later. But how do you avoid uh, students becoming very dependent on those prompts before they'll even do the skill? Um, I think it might sound a little cliche, but I give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, nothing is one size fits all. So I definitely know that with each skill and each student I work with, I do have to kind of look at it with new eyes, even each day. Um, so within that, I know that I need to start fading. For example, for one student, it might be within that one work time. We're sitting at a table doing an activity or an assignment, and within that one work time, I know I might have to start fading my prompts. And for another learner, I might have to do it maybe throughout the day, um, give multiple opportunities to practice, and then fade throughout the day, um, or even a week. Um, as long as I'm doing that kind of systematically, or I'm keeping track of where I started the day, where I ended the day, then I know that I am being responsible and fading in order to promote that independence. Oh, I love that you said that you kept track of uh, the way that you're prompting and how your students are responding to prompting. And so that's like a whole nother five or six podcasts <laughs> yes. in, in terms of data collection. Um, but I, I do really want our listeners to kind of hear that, that it really is important to keep track uh, and uh, so that you really know uh, that your student is learning what you are, are trying to help them learn. So uh, we'll probably come back to this topic in just a little bit, Whitney but let's uh, uh, move on to a, another question here. Um, in, in behavior analysis, we talk about response prompts, which means things that are added to help the student respond correctly, and stimulus prompts uh, that involve changing the materials in some way to help the student respond correctly. And uh, teachers use both of them all the time, but I'm not sure that teachers are real uh, clear, as I know I wasn't for many years, uh, in terms of what's what and when do you use a response prompt or a stimulus prompt or both together. So if you would talk a little bit about how each is used and uh, with some examples, because I know I saw many wonderful examples in your classroom, um, 
and why one type of prompt may be better than the other, depending on the skill and depending on the student. Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, the response prompts, I think, are the ones that are more popular, and it's what most people think of when they think of prompting. Um, so those are those two categories I kind of talked about before. We have our verbal um, where we might give a full verbal, a partial verbal. We might use some visuals, so some text, some stimuli that's, you know, kind of draws an eye or some actual written textual. Um, and then the physical side of that is our, our full physical, our hand over hand. Um, I actually also like to use hand under hand. Um, I like considering what can be done because it's visually less intrusive. Um, so kind of, you know, if you're able to do that by helping a student hold and turn an assignment, but your hand is actually under their hand. So you can, they see themselves doing the task, even though you still are providing that full physical prompt. Um, and then that would fade to partial physical. We could do some modeling, some gestures and some positional. So those are the, the response prompts that happen after we give that direction or that SD. Um, and it, it happens to support that behavior uh, that we're wanting, you know, we want that goal to happen. And so we cue them by providing that. But then on the other hand, the stimulus prompts, the prompts that are paired with the SD are used before the response. So kind of immediately, you know, to give that cue initially with the direction at the same time or paired with it, they seem to be used less frequently. Um, and I think that's either because they're less common um, or because, you know, they don't, they're used not necessarily um, knowingly. And so a teacher might modify something for a student and that's truly a stimulus prompt, but they don't know they're prompting that way. Great. You use the term um, SD, which stands for discriminative stimulus. Uh, would you kind of explain for uh, people who are, are, you know, just learning about ABA or unfamiliar with ABA, what we mean when we talk about an SD? Yes, of course. Um, so that SD, I basically tell the people I work with now, my assistants, um, that the SD is, is basically that direction or that um, cue um, or stimulus. So something that kind of gives way to something needs to come after it. So if it's a direction, then you're expecting a response, whether it be a physical response or a verbal response, um, it's, it then leads to uh, a learner or student doing an action. So that's just kind of that quick version of what an SD or a direction yeah, that's a really good explanation. And, I, you know, I find, I mean, just thinking about um, everyday stimuli uh, is like the, you know, the sign on the on the restroom door, you know, the, the pick the icon of the men or woman or whatever, or, you know, uh, family or whatever, that's an SD. A red light is an SD for, of course, stopping and a green light for go. So that, you know, pretty much everything is an SD of some sort or another. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, we we come into contact them with them all day long. We already have our responses, you know, our fluent responses. Whereas we are helping our students get in that same kind of level with uh, after that 
they contact that stimulus, then we want them to have a, a fluid response as well. Oh, right. And that uh, great the, that you use that word fluent, because that is really, again, that goes with independence. If you're fluent mm-hmm. in something, you're independent. And so I, you know, I always think about kids using schedules, which, uh, you know, you worked so hard in preschool, beginning to get the kids to use their schedules fluently and independently. Um, and I know that that it really is a big issue for many teachers, uh, because they find themselves giving that constant prompt, check your schedule, check your schedule, check your schedule, when what we want is for the student to be able to understand task complete, check my schedule to see what's next, uh, yeah. or, or to know, which is also affluent. Um, there was another word that you used. Um, you talked uh, that about teachers being unaware, uh, particularly of some of those stimulus prompts. Um, and so, and that I, I find, you know, in both in my own practice and in supervising teachers, we do it all the time, but often we're unaware of it. And that's what kind of trips us up sometimes. So would you talk about how we sort of unknowingly uh, give prompts to students? Yeah, definitely. Um, So in my experience, when you're providing that stimulus prompt, it's something that teachers do wonderfully at when they're making individual materials for each of their students. And so they could do something like presenting Um, If we talk about a visual schedule, then they might have the upcoming activity be in color and all the other schedule icons be black and white. Um, And so that would cue them um, by kind of changing the color um, of what is coming next. So they're more drawn to picking the correct response and then, you know, getting reinforced because they did the correct behavior there. Um, Sometimes teachers would use positioning. um, So putting uh, something in a different location. Um, so that way the, the learner is more likely to, again, pick the correct response and get reinforcement that way. Um, so if, for example, if they're wanting them to pick the black colored pencil or crayon, they might put all of the other crayons a little farther away and then the black one closer so that that way that they are setting them up for success with a less intrusive prompt. Um, and then they might provide some sort of movement, um, maybe a point, a touch, or even looking at the correct response, you know, kind of paired with that direction. And then again, giving that student the opportunity to respond independently. Uh, right. Um, that, that, those are great examples. I also think of like with uh, writing, you know, if a, if a, you um, um, give a, a child a you know, say its name, but have the lines dashed and the child is to trace over them, that would sort of be a stimulus prompt and something that a lot of teachers use without really knowing what it is. Uh, but it, it does, uh, those things do have to be faded. Um, you also mentioned that, that one of them is actually looking at the correct response. And that's great if you're aware of it. Uh, yeah. But, but <laughs> I find um, that, that with myself, you know, with, you're hoping with all your being that the child will make the correct response. And it is easy to kind of um, mistakenly look at the correct response when you don't mean to. You have to be very self-aware when using that one. It's either like an over-exaggerated look or you have to kind of just stand still and, you know, if you're not intending to use it. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I have often been told I need to be careful with my face because my face yes. gives away a lot. And, it, and it's very <laughs> true. I mean, it's, it's amusing and we all do it. Uh, and it's an important thing for kids, especially to get those social cues of facial expression and all. Uh, but when you're uh, t- teaching a skill, it really is important to keep your, your expression pretty neutral to make sure that they're actually responding to the SD you intend and not the SD that, you know, you unintentionally provide. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we've talked about, well, we're, we're kind of uh, along this theme. Uh, we've talked about the problem about using prompts, particularly with students with autism spectrum disorders, is that students can become very prompt dependent. So would you talk about what that means and how you avoid it? Um, and then, you know, some examples, because, you know, I, I know I, I'm thinking of one particular example uh, in, your, in your classroom with a, with a little guy um, that, we, that we talked about quite a bit. And um, I'll remind you of that if, if, you, if you can't bring him to mind. But would you go <laughs> ahead and talk about that prompt dependence and what it means and, and how you avoid prompt dependence? Yeah, this is definitely a tricky tricky one, especially when we're talking about our students with um, ASD. And prompt dependency is kind of just when the prompt is paired so immediately and so strongly with your SD or your direction that the student would not know what to do without that prompt or any type of movement or cue or support being present with that direction. And so and so they're they're not doing much themselves. Um, they're kind of waiting for that shadow or that second person. Um, and, and then they might be more willing to do, or I guess might be more able with that constant support, but we're not necessarily fading prompts. Um, that's, that could be the problem. Um, and, and kind of the big words that go with that is you want to make sure that you're transferring your stimulus control from the prompt to the direction through prompt fading. And and basically that's why I mentioned earlier that I definitely keep track of what prompt I used last so I can resume using that prompt and continue fading kind of down that staircase, providing less the least intrusive and less and less support. Um, So I can transfer um, what makes that behavior happen from my prompts to just the direction by itself, creating that independence. Um, So I do that by keeping track by, for individual learners, making sure that if if they can have that done within the lesson, then I am fading within that lesson. As soon as possible, I'm able to step away and give them that more independence. Um, And when I'm doing this, I'm trying to provide more opportunities. Um, that way, if it's not within the lesson, then throughout the day, I can kind of set up this, the environment to practice the skill a few times. So then I can try to fade within the day or within the week. So making sure that you, you're keeping track, you're taking that data um, so you know when to fade or what might be coming next as you go down that hierarchy Um, Or it could show you that you can maybe skip around and you might not have to go from a full physical to that partial and all the way down that staircase that the student might actually just need that exposure by using a full physical prompt. And then you might even be able to fade to modeling right away, which, you know, the student would have to know how to imitate and a few other skills uh, in order for modeling to be successful. But 
that's something that you as a teacher could model or even that peer modeling or your assistants could model. So that's a good way to, by keeping track. It's a good way to know what step to come next and how you can create those opportunities. Um, I also, I also know that with that response prompt, that the physical prompting is pretty intrusive itself and it doesn't allow the student to independently respond until the very end. So it's something to keep in mind that you don't want to use that consistently over time, every single time, because the more that you do that, the more the learner, or the student's going to know, hey, well, they're just going to help me. They're going to be there. And that's going to create that prompt dependency that we, we definitely want to avoid, especially for our learners with autism. It gets a little difficult, I think, sometimes for students who might have that um, resistance to physical touch. And so you have to be creative. Um, you don't want that pairing of the behavior, uh, your prompting in the behavior to create other things, you know, I guess, uh, secondary behaviors instead of, you know, if you're supporting them to trace their name, you don't want that physical touch to, I guess, become aversive or even kind of they come passive, you know, so if they're tolerating it, and they're like, okay, well, I know my teacher's just going to help me through it. Then that prompt dependency, every time you get that worksheet out, that direction or that SD is going to be, well, I'm going to sit here, my teacher's going to pick up my pencil and hold my hand and write, you know, help me write that entire word without ever using kind of those hierarchies. And so those are things to be aware of, because they could learn that instead of that independence or that fluency, they learn that this behavior happens 100% of the time with my teacher support. They don't know yet that that's something that they can learn to do independently. Well, those are such great examples. And um, I also find many times with the full physical uh, prompting, especially for those kids that have difficulty with, you know, tolerating touch and such, uh, that sometimes it that just automatically turns into a struggle. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you mentioned secondary behaviors, and that's certainly one of them uh, that we really need to be on the lookout for. And, you know, our emotions as teachers sort of get involved, and it's kind of, you know, sometimes the, the you're going to do this. <laughs> enters yeah. in. Uh, but I really try to help teachers understand that if it turns into a struggle, no learning is going on. The only learning that's going on is that I am getting what the attention from you, or maybe I'm getting the physical uh, input from you that, you know, for some reason is pleasing to me, uh, but it's not, doesn't have anything to do with teaching that child to, to, you know, use a pencil or, you know, whatever, um, uh, um, uh, whatever thing it is. So I, I'm so glad that you brought that up, uh, that, it, that it can be uh, very hard to fade and you do and physically, you do want to fade uh, to uh, lesser prompts just as quickly as possible. And, and then the what you actually are prompting with that full physical prompt is, yeah, teacher's going to help me. I'm cool here. That's, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't have to put <laughs> forth any effort. Uh, and 
in that case, um, it's the teacher's attention that becomes the real reinforcer. And so learning to do it independently, you know, sort of takes on a secondary because it's hard to learn Mm -hmm. to do it independently. Um, Do you have other examples of of that that you have have noticed? I mean, well, and I'd like us to also talk about um, verbal uh, um, prompting as well in that same regard. But do you have other examples? Because I think those examples that, that you have that you've experienced are so powerful. Yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of, I guess we could kind of talk about that verbal, but there's a lot of the students that learn um, many things through that imitation, um, through verbal prompting. But I think one thing to be aware of, too, with verbal prompting is that you want to make sure that you're not providing too much verbal input for a variety of reasons. Um, You wouldn't necessarily give a step-by-step of a physical task with verbal prompting. So um, some kids with those adaptive skills that you're teaching, um, or even if they're working on maybe um, a block pattern um, for visual and math um, skills, you're not going to be giving verbal steps for that type of thing because it's a either visual or ver- uh, physical task. And those kind of assigning that verbal prompting to a physical task also creates a prompt dependency because they might not know how to match these pictures without you saying, put the yellow square on the yellow square or put the red triangle on top of the yellow square, when really we need to provide those visual cues or those physical cues like a gesture, um, because they might then learn that every time I sit down and do this type of activity, my teacher's going to sit next to me and provide these directions. And if they have the receptive language, that's a skill that they might already be fluent at, so they can put them on top and they can create this, you know, math um, or this visual block matching easily but it won't necessarily fade to independence because every time they sit down, they're waiting for that teacher to give those verbal prompts. You know, same thing with learning to wash hands. Uh, Like you said, I worked in preschool. So washing hands is a big, you know, beginning step to the school world um, or to the community even. Um, But having a teacher or an educational assistant standing behind them and saying, turn on water, wet hands, pump soap, rub, count to 20, all of those verbal directions on a physical task are definitely something that can become prompt dependency if we're not supporting them, you know, physically or even with a visual visual directions in that setting, that if they were to be um, a little bit older in the community, they use the restroom by themselves, but they're standing there in front of the sink completely lost because they don't have the teacher, you know, next to them, giving them each direction. Um, That's the biggest kind of thing I try to think about is how this would work in the community or even at home. How can they use these skills um, and how can I reach that independence as soon as possible so we can see those skills in other areas without me right there next to them? Those are those are great examples. And also, I mean, you had mentioned before, uh, imitation is one of the things that we use modeling. Uh, but with again, with students with um, autism, I have found that you have to be very, very careful because some of them will imitate almost anything. And the, uh, the prompts that you give, particularly the verbal prompts are among them. So you might have a student um, who is telling himself to put the yellow square on the yellow square or 
you know, get soap or so they, they go through uh, mm-hmm. sort of a self prompting, which is okay, except it's weird. And, um, <laughs> you know, we, we don't want our kids to be able to do that. Um, I had another example from uh, someone that's on the clinical staff that was telling me that they, they couldn't understand that um, uh, a, the child at home um, would follow directions, but only after he said he would wait for the parent to say, I'll tell you one time. And he would, you know, just keep repeating, I'll tell you one time, I'll tell you one time, until the parent said, I'll tell you one time, go get your pajamas on. And so that was a um, case of the I'll tell you one time became a part of the SD, which is go get your pajamas on. Um, And that is just, I mean, it's so confounding because it's not what typically developing children do, but for children with autism, it's, it's a pretty common thing. Um, and I think we, we see that, um, you know, many times in our, our classrooms where we say, well, he's just so passive. Well, he may not be passive, but he's waiting for that, uh, that phrase or that touch or whatever. Uh, do you have other, any other examples of that, that you, uh, that, you know, popped into your mind? Can Um, I ask you something real quick? Certainly. Um, so one of the things that I, that we run into all the time, sort of along those lines are the prompts when teachers are, are sort of inadvertently prompting, uh, inappropriate behavior through, you know, like, a um, I, I, the example escapes me, but I'm hoping you guys can come up with it where it's basically don't do that or, you know, remember to use calm hands or whatever, but actually all that does is remind the kid, oh, well, yeah, well, I can engage in behavior extreme and get out of this. Oh, that boy, that's a really great question. Uh, Whitney, do you have some uh, thoughts about that one? Yeah, so it's kind of like we said, when, when our direction actually ends up being a prompt for something. And so Patrick's example was kind of like, if we have a student that uh, is maybe avoiding a certain activity of the day, and we say, uh, we use maybe a first then statement, but then that first then statement is then kind of paired. It's my, it's supposed to be acting as my direction, but it's kind of paired with, you know, first write, um, then take a break, then that, that pairing of that SD, for example, could then actually be a prompt or a cue for the the student to destroy his paper or run away from the paper, trying to figure out a way to escape. Um, So truly, it's giving kind of that opposite. So when we're trying to, um, I guess, label the behavior we're wanting, so please use quiet hands or remember, ready hands and then you can use your pencil. Um, those things can actually act as cues of remembering, oh, well, last time I got out of this activity by throwing my pencil and swiping the table of all my work. Um, so making sure that um, when those type of things kind of become paired together, that you're using uh, a, a different type of kind of reinforcement or kind of making sure that you are not reinforcing that behavior and using um, kind of changing your prompting level for success. Um, So not giving that opportunity for that behavior to happen, but trying to get in there. And we would say kind of errorless prompting, kind of backing up a step 
So if this student needed, you know, lesser support, giving a little bit more support so you can quickly get that correct response and move on before that, um, that previous uh, direction would lead to that behavior. Oh, those are, those are some really good examples. And I'm so glad that you mentioned the errorless prompting as well, uh, because I think that, that people tes- hesitate to use that because they think, well, they're not learning anything if they can't make an error. But um, what they learn is the right way to do it immediately without um, making a, a bunch of errors and having to unlearn the errors. So I think that's a really good uh, point. And I'm, I'm so glad Patrick brought up, uh, you know, that we, we actually prompt a lot lot of um, misbehavior or challenging behavior uh, through um, our, our words and actions. And, you know, your example of the first then is a really important one because that has to be so carefully taught, first complete this and then complete that, uh, because oftentimes the, the, the uh, student is ready to go straight to the then, and they mm-hmm. know exactly how to get to the then, even if it's not the way uh, that you as the teacher envision that. So those were some really great examples. And verbal prompting is very hard to fade. You've talked about, you know, using uh, partial sounds or, you know, just gestures and things like that. Um, Are there any, and, uh, you know, I'm I'm asking this with a a, um, sort of an eye to one kind of prompting. Are are there any kinds of prompts, you know, and just thinking about our own, you know, daily existence that don't necessarily have to be faded? that you, you know, sort of want to, to make good use of, uh, because they don't have to necessarily be faded. Um, I think when you have learners or students that you implement a visual schedule, but then you teach how that visual schedule can become a written schedule and you can use it, um, in a planner and then planners can go with us through, through life. Um, I used a planner until just recently, and then everything kind of went on my computer. Um, but, using a a schedule that, you know, first might start off as, you know, those big visual cues or, you know, bigger icons. And then you, you might even um, decrease them in size, or you might make them more transparent using other types of uh, stimulus prompts, um, and then making kind of a word more apparent on them. And then transitioning your student to a word schedule, whether it be maybe on the board for the whole class, or if when they get to the age of, I don't know, maybe middle school or late elementary, when they have planners that they can write what what's their day looks like, those types of things kind of go with you. I, I say for life, um, I think checklists are a big one. Um, there's even apps that have checklists. So those things are very common that you can teach, you know, from that word schedule to a word checklist, teaching the process of checking things off as they go throughout their day. Um, So using those visual stimuli, visual cues, um, and then use an app in your phone. I think um, the example we kind of talked about before is putting something in front of your door before you leave the house so you don't forget it is part of that, you know, that stimulus prompter, that visual cue that I definitely still use now being a mother of a one-year-old. I need everything by the door. Otherwise, I'm going to forget half of what I need for the day. 
Those are those are such great examples, and I, I'm really so glad because um, you know you told us that you're a preschool teacher, and I you know can kind of hear uh, mid school and high school teachers in their back of my head saying, "Oh, that'll never work," um, <laughs> but it, it 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 does, and we as you know functioning adults, and you know particularly you know myself as I get older, I need a lot more prompting uh, that I provide for myself uh, so that I can remember, and we all do that. So uh, just kind of um, thinking about how to transfer uh, the prompts that we will always need into uh, things that are, are easily available and, and usable. And uh, so, you know, I have often been asked, when do you stop using a schedule? Well, the answer is really you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, all, we all use them or most all of us use them um, in um, more age-appropriate ways. So that's just really an important thing. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad that, that you... Um, brought that up, how many prompts that we still depend on as, you know, uh, fully functioning uh, adults and, you know, the, that we all address our own issues differently with the kind of prompts that we provide for ourselves. And so we're just helping our students uh, do that in, a, in an age-appropriate way. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this has been a great discussion, Whitney. I really appreciate it. Is there anything else that you would really like to share about prompting uh, that we haven't touched on yet? Um, I think I just kind of want to reiterate the biggest thing is you, you have to really look at the concept of prompting, you know, not as the hierarchies listed, it needs to be implemented every single day with every student the same way I did say already, but it, it's not a one size fits all. Um, you, you can start with your basic prompts, um, and, but be very ready to change and adapt as your learner needs it to be. Uh, I think, the more practice you have for specific learners, the easier it is going to be for you to kind of do so in your head or fluently. Um, so a lot of things that I do, I, I provide my, my staff with a lot of visuals. So they get visual prompts all the time, um, kind of those stimulus prompts on the walls. Um, so they know what the hierarchy looks like and what they can do if this learner needs to kind of jump around. Um, so Uh, One thing we haven't really said, but using graduated guidance, which is just providing those physical prompts, but only if needed, and then immediately fade when that learner starts to do it, starts doing it independently. Um, So throughout the day, kind of doing tasks, whether it is um, an academic goal, an IEP goal, or whether it's just something adaptive, you're teaching a, a real life sort of situation give them as much support as they need, but you even said it immediately back off or give them that independence because we don't want to show that our students can do all of these great things, but they can only do all of these great things with me or with their EA next to them hundred percent of the time, or they can only do it in the school context. We want to show that these things are significant enough that we've taught that they can do wherever that skill might actually be needed. Um, I think that's super important for our learners. Um, and I also think that uh, providing them with, I guess, the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Sometimes we are all humans. We all have bad days and we all make, you know, errors or we all just don't want to be at work one day. So if you have to use error lists and even if for a day kind of go back and give them that higher level of prompting to 
kind of avoid frustration within this activity or this assignment because you know they're you're going to be presenting it again <laughs> um so give them that grace to slow down to help them out just make it through the day show them that they can still be successful and then the next day maybe go back to that lower level of prompt that you were providing and and see if they can be successful again um because not everything is a perfect you know graph where the behavior increases and we're teaching these things wonderfully there's spikes in everybody's behaviors and so um, making sure that we know that one day if you have to back up it's not gonna completely destroy the progress that you've worked on with this student and the student's not going to forget. Um, so just taking it day by day, step by step, and knowing that um, as long as you're keeping track of what you're doing, you can float around a little bit. You can provide them with more support if it's a bad day and then just keep working on fading the next day. Oh, those are those are great. And I am so glad that you brought up the idea of, I mean, um, understanding that everybody has their bad days and sometimes you have to go back and also that not one size fits all. I mean, we kind of get the idea, you know, when we talk about the prompting hierarchy that that's, you know, what's going to work for every kid all the time. And and it is so not and um, that you you brought up that you really have to, you know, I, I often use the phrase listen uh, to, you know, children's behavior, listen to what they're telling you they need, mm-hmm. um, not only with your ears, but, you know, with, with uh, you know, other, other senses as well. Um, so that's great. And also the, the benefit of the doubt and, and um, many times um, and, and letting them, you know, learn a little bit as they go on, letting them learn a little bit from failure uh, by, yeah. you know, hoping, giving them opportunities uh, that they need. And I, I just, you know, because I am me, I can't help but bring up the whole issue of toileting you know what we <laughs> what we think about uh, for for very young children we want them to uh, either t- we, we want them to tell us that they need to go to the bathroom but that really is um, we don't really want that ultimately and so um, mm-hmm. you know thinking about and I, I know you did this in your classroom uh, sometimes uh, giving kids the opportunity to just go to the bathroom when they need to which is what we all do and which mm-hmm. is the goal for for functioning. So uh, just thinking about uh, providing those opportunities at some risk uh, Mm -hmm. to uh, uh, give children the opportunity to to learn from learn from mistakes if they if they have to, but also to really give them the opportunity to to be successful in unexpected ways. And that's that's a great idea. And you said listen to them. I, I learn a lot from my students and the, the learners that I've worked with. And, and so not every time they run away is an elopement and it's a behavior that I need to track and I need to block them. You know, sometimes that elopement is actually, I forgot my favorite, you know, blue marker, or I do need to go to the bathroom and the, the you know, it's too difficult for me to tell you. So I'm just going to run and go. And so giving them giving them, listening to them, you know, their behaviors that might not be a verbal or vocal language. It might be something that they're doing that actually could provide us with more insight on how to prompt them or how to, you know, move on with the goal or make the next target is, is by listening and watching them as well. 
Oh, such such great examples. And uh, this has really been, I, I really enjoyed this conversation. It's been a fun conversation for me, and I, I hope it's really been informative and meaningful for our listeners. Um, if there's uh, not anything else that you have to add, Whitney, I will just uh, tell our li- listeners you are welcome to contact the school team at the Center for Development and Disability. Uh, and, uh, you know, that information is readily available for you. Um, thank you so much for listening. And uh, we look forward to um, being with you on other podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.